My name is Shannon Beer. I am a nutrition coach and educator interested in the consilience of knowledge across disciplines, including science, psychology, philosophy, art and literature. The goal of this podcast is to bridge those disciplines and explore different perspectives in order to gain a greater understanding of myself, others and the world around us. Enjoy the show. Today I am joined by Dr Eva Piller who is an assistant professor at Western University in the School of Kinesiology and she directs the research team at the Body Image and Health Lab whose research focuses on understanding body image and body inequity as it relates to movement, mental health and well-being. A main goal of this research is to develop psychological interventions currently centered on self-compassion to promote the health and well-being of individuals in marginalized bodies. So I'm really excited to be joined by you today. And I thought we could start off just with a bit of an introduction to your work and your role at the Body Image Health and Research Lab. Sure. So first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's really great to be here and uh, it's always important to, to talk about this work. So especially outside of the university context. So yeah, so thank you for having me. Um, so my uh, role in the BIH lab, so we established the lab three years ago when I started my position at Western University. And, um, you know, we're a research team comprising of myself as the principal investigator. So I direct the lab and I supervise graduate and undergraduate students in both kinesiology and psychology. Um, and these are masters and PhDs students that are doing specialized uh, research in the area of body image and so how it sort of intersects with physical activity behavior from a kinesiology standpoint and then also um, you know intersecting with some social psychology as well. So uh, much of the work that we do obviously in my role is research-based. Um, and then of course, uh, as a professor at a university, I also spend a little bit of time uh, teaching graduate and undergraduate students on uh, topics around exercise psychology and body image. And so it's a dual role in um, teaching and also uh, conducting research and uh, disseminating that research to the scientific community and also ideally the general public. Yeah, that's awesome. And I agree that I think this work is really important. But on a personal note, why do you think this is important? Yeah, so I mean, you know, I always sort of answer this question by saying because I was a girl and am a woman who grew up in a westernized society that is obsessed with women's bodies and controlling women's bodies and, um, you know, much of my own personal experiences direct a lot of um, my interest in this area and I think it is a very um, universal uh, experience that you know, connects a lot of people and not just girls and women. Uh, oftentimes we see this happening ubiquitously for a lot of different folks and uh, particularly folks that are living in marginalized bodies. So, um, you know, that might be anyone in a body that is a, that is stigmatized in our society. So we can think of like higher weight or fat identifying individuals or individuals in queer bodies um, or disabled bodies. So, um, you know, that is... Uh, you know, one of my one of the main reasons I'm interested in it because it is uh, personally impactful. I think it's a great way of connecting um, and bringing awareness to many people's experiences. And um, yeah, I think that that about summarizes the importance. Um, and and I think this is the case with most researchers, where there is oftentimes uh, a level of personal connection to the work that we do. 
yeah yeah and I think that as you say it is something that affects such a, a large number of people and I know that body dissatisfaction you know, has recently been sort of termed a public health issue as well just because of the number of people and the normative discontent um the amount of people that are affected both men and women so what are your opinions mm. on considering it a public health issue yeah absolutely so I mean we have a fair bit of research evidence to to draw from in in making claims like that. Um, we know that many indicators of body image are really strong and robust predictors of global mental health and quality of life. So, um, you know, I think in a public domain, we tend to think of body image as this issue of vanity or this like, mm -hmm. um, you know, interest in appearing a certain way. And I think that can sometimes outweigh the importance of what our relationship with our body really represents and how important it is to our mental health. So, you know, in recent years, we've, in our Western societies, anyway, is um, given a little bit more attention to mental health as a health issue. And I see body image and our relationship with our bodies as a really big part of that. So it's a really big piece of the mental health puzzle. Um, and so if we're in a mental health crisis, then absolutely body image plays uh, a large part in that, given what we know about how it predicts and it's so closely related to, um, to many mental health concerns. Mm, absolutely. And I'm glad that you touched on the fact that it's not about vanity. It's more so about how someone sort of perceives themselves and their value in the world. Because mm. as a sort of um, someone who works in the fitness industry, you know, trying to talk about body image for some people is a little bit confusing because it's almost like telling them in if the message gets confused or you shouldn't care about how you look which is not what mm -hmm. we're it's just about changing your relationship with with yourself mm -hmm. so maybe could you expand on um sort of the relationship between body image and mental health yeah so I, I think and actually I want to touch on what you just said as well about oftentimes it doesn't get taken uh, seriously because it's so normalized and so when you mentioned that this idea of normative discontent I mean these this was one of like the the early terms introduced in the um late um 90s uh actually even maybe a little bit earlier like I think in the in the 80s where the body image research was starting to uh, become established uh, in the psychological domain as we know it today and you know I think this is a really important issue in that it is so normalized that in a I think public context we oftentimes can't recognize when it does become an issue because it feels like, of course, we would exercise for um, the purpose of changing our body. That's what exercise is for. And so that's so normalized that we don't even critically examine it at all. Um, and so, you know, to go back to your question around how does body image contribute to mental health? Um, you know, I think we can look to many theoretical frameworks in this area. We can also look to some of the atheoretical uh, literature that links um body image uh and this is like the way that we relate to ourselves so it is associated with mental health on a broad spectrum so uh, when we think about mental health it's not just mental illness so it's not just the experience of eating disorders or uh, depressed uh, major depression or uh you know a generalized anxiety disorder mental health falls along the spectrum and so um you know, same sort of thing with our body image uh, concerns, they can fall along the spectrum. And so um, the ways in which our relationship with our body impacts our mental health is 
pretty complicated. Um, we know that when we experience um, heightened investment in our body or when we habitually monitor our bodies or, or where when we spend a large proportion of our time and energy and resources dedicated to appearing a certain way to be viewed as valued and um, to socially belong, then that can take away our energy, our time, our resources towards doing other things that could contribute to our well-being and contribute to our, um, you know, global self that's complex and not just a, you know, body that's meant to be viewed for the pleasure of others. So, you know, I think that's a big piece of how body image impacts mental health for the large proportion of individuals, if we think about it from like a public health uh, population level perspective is that it takes our energy and attention away from other things that could help us flourish and could help us to um, engage with our life in ways that are very meaningful and help us achieve our goals. So that I think is, you know, a big picture uh, perspective around how it probably affects most people. But in addition to that, we see it on, you know, the far end of the spectrum with folks who are experiencing really um, disordered uh, body image. And in those cases, you know, it is really highly linked with uh, depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms. Um, you know, we've even seen some uh, work linking it to increased risk of suicidality. So, um, you know, certainly there are more deleterious mental health outcomes that are also associated with um, the ways that we relate to our body. But I think it's also important to consider how mental health is this global um, facet that includes both positive and negative dimensions and um, you know, part of being humans that are living in a healthful and adaptive uh, way, we are experiencing not just the absence of mental illness, but also the presence of uh, mental health and, and well-being. I'm so glad that you sort of distinguished between, you know, mental illness and mental health as being potentially like distinct constructs. And I'm very fond of um, the work of Keyes, who sort of posits that you can have flourishing mental health. Um, and that, again, that's, we're not talking about mental illness. And that's, I guess, similar to how the, the field of body image research has advanced, you know, by looking at the, the negative side of things and dress, addressing pathologies. And now we're sort of beginning to see a lot more research into, oh, what's actually, you know, contributes to flourishing? What are strengths that mm. we potentially, you know, enhance um, as protective factors? And as a, um, coach who doesn't have a psychology background, I'm always very hesitant to talk about positive mental health, even though I see it as being a part of health and, and well-being. Mm -hmm. like, when you're giving someone nutrition advice, you can't divorce that from the psychology of the individual, just mm -hmm. how closely our food intake is, you know, everyone's figured out that, oh, if I manipulate my food intake, I can manipulate my appearance. Um, so how closely that is tied to feelings of self-worth and, and even um, in terms of how someone feels about their rate of progress when they're hyper-focused on scale weight and those sorts of mm -hmm. metrics that, you know, failing to consider this side of things, I think is a disservice. 
Um, so I'm glad that you distinguish between positive and uh, mental health and mental illness, because I think we can speak to mental health, even if we mm. don't have a psychology background and necessarily mm. because we're not aiming to treat mental illness in my role. Exactly. Um, exactly. So like about the, the concept of flourishing health, which does encompass, mm-hmm. today, you know, our um, social well-being as well. And then how does body mm-hmm. relate to our social functioning? Um, so mm-hmm. it's just sort of really important, I think, to think about the broader context and knowing that you know you're dealing with individuals and you can't divorce their body or their nutrition from who they are and how they relate to things and -hmm. I think that's partly um, why or how I stumbled upon this work is because I noticed just how normalized particularly in the fitness industry is oh someone comes to work with you they must want to lose weight that's the only reason that you know doing anything is worth doing um mm-hmm. and they must weigh themselves they must track their macros and count every calorie and I was like mm-hmm. why why can't people want to do this for their well-being which looks like mm-hmm. it could look like a totally different approach mm-hmm. um so I wonder then in terms of somebody you're, you're working with somebody who um does experience like body dissatisfaction their appearance has become a large part of who they are and they are you know set on the idea well if i just could lose a few pounds that would solve the problem that would make all the difference how might we go about um you know helping them to to feel better in their bodies mm-hmm. yeah so this is a really good question and i you know i don't think there's a simple answer with what we've been talking about so far and recognizing how ingrained this normal normative discontent is and how many sociocultural influences there are that continue continue to perpetuate and reinforce these beliefs it is very difficult to you know start to to have that change so there needs to be that this radical unlearning of everything we've been taught in in our society we need to be critical of the um the messages that we are sold we need to be critical of the fitness industry being uh, you know built on capitalistic intentions that aren't meant for people to feel good about themselves and so you know, I think like recognizing all these things can be really, really helpful. So even just uh, psychoeducation can be quite helpful. So trying to uh, be critical of our, um, of the traditional approach. Uh, So, you know, this comes down to like media literacy and there's certainly research um, looking at at media literacy interventions and psychoeducational approaches. And then of course, there are more involved psychological approaches as well. So you know, like cultivating a um, more mindful approach to um, how we are uh, thinking about our bodies, about our thoughts, our feelings, our uh, emotions, the way that we uh, relate to our bodies and how connected we are with the body. So oftentimes there tends to be um, a disconnection or a disembodiment that happens uh, in states of of body dissatisfaction or body image concern, um, if we lump that together. So Um, you know, there's that disconnection. So there's research to suggest that if we can connect back to the body and um, recognize what the body's needs are, and this is much easier said than done, um, you know, that can really help us to identify what some of the things that our body needs are, which may be uh, resting instead of pushing ourselves really hard. It might be, um, you know, eating something that you may not cognitively um, have on your nutrition plan, or if so, it might be really just responding to the body's cues. Um, and 
the research right now is really focused and, and of course I'm biased in saying this because this is where my interest is, but um, is really focused on an area uh, called self-compassion where we uh, try to mindfully attune to the body's needs and also to treat our body-related distress in a kind and compassionate and understanding way. So this comes back to that recognition that we are living in a very imperfect world that continually reinforces the um, problematic cognitions and problematic um, feelings that we might have about the body and to show ourselves kindness in those moments because it is really hard to try to um, you know, work towards body acceptance, quote unquote, when we are inundated with messages of the contrary. So yeah, so I think media literacy, um, psychoeducation, self-compassion, of course, and then, you know, there's a whole body of literature on other types of interventions as well, focusing on changing cognitions, um, you know, cognitive dissonance interventions are really common, particularly in um, young adults and adolescents. Um, you know, writing intervention. So we can, we can practice a lot of these things in many different modalities. So it can be, uh, and most of the most effective modalities include some sort of active engagement. So rather than just reading material or being presented with video explaining certain content, it would be actively engaging with your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own behaviors, uh, recognizing your own social sources and influences that impact how you might be feeling, um, setting boundaries when you're recognizing that those are um, sources that might be problematic for your, you know, body acceptance journey. So, um, you know, lots of different ways and, um, and lots of possibilities, which is really great because not everyone is going to align with every approach. So it's nice to have uh, different options that uh, folks can sort of gravitate towards what fits well and what feels like it would be helpful. Mm, absolutely and I'm glad that you said it's you know not a, a simple or straightforward task because I think that some individuals can get a little bit disheartened when mm -hmm. like, when am I gonna feel better and it's like well that's not even the end goal ultimately you're not gonna feel mm -hmm. great today that's still not the point mm -hmm. but um for sure there are a lot of things that we could be doing to work on our relationships with ourselves and our bodies and you mentioned um self-compassion now I'd like mm -hmm. to dive into this a little bit deeper because I think that people again particularly in the fitness industry which is like the no pain no gain kind of mentality mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of misconceptions when it comes to what self-compassion actually is and often gets conflated with you know oh just going easy on yourself or giving mm -hmm. up on yourself or giving yourself an excuse to, to do what mm -hmm. you want um, so could you clear some of that up for us? What, what is self-compassion? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, you know, I will say if it helps, you know, my training. So since my undergraduate degree, my training is in kinesiology. So I'm very familiar with the, you know, rhetoric in the fitness community. Um, and it's unfortunately no better in the exercise science community. Uh, you know, we are making changes, absolutely. But still there is a huge ingrained um, rhetoric around, you know, higher intensity is better and weight loss is the goal and we need to get more people moving and um, sedentary behavior is bad and physical activity and high exercise is good, high performance is something that, 
so there all these things exist even in the academic training that I've had and you know I had to do not not only a lot of personal unlearning but also academic unlearning and so um, I will say that even within um, you know kinesiology communities these thoughts and these research areas and some of these newer contemporary ideas are not well accepted um, so you know the yeah so I I think I just want to sort of normalize the fact that this is very common to feel resistant towards some of these more contemporary philosophies around the body and, and exercise. But basically, self-compassion is something that I actually discovered um, in therapy, um, and it ended up being something that made so much sense in how it fit with the research work I was already doing. At the time, I was studying body image. I was really interested in uh, negative body image and negative emotional experiences around the body. And simultaneously, I was learning in therapy how to be more compassionate towards myself and how to reduce my perfectionism and my self-criticism. So, you know, putting the links together, it was like such an aha moment. And of course, you know, researchers had been doing that for years before I, <laughs> I came to the realization. Um, but basically, self-compassion is this uh, kind and understanding way of relating to the self. So it was... Um, it is stemming from more uh, traditional Buddhist principles around uh, compassion, compassion for others, um, around the practice of mindfulness. And, you know, it's often misperceived as something that means, you know, pitying yourself or, um, you know, as you said, letting yourself go or giving yourself permission to just do whatever you want, losing accountability, all these things that are very antithetical to you know, the fitness community more, more broadly. And wh whereas in reality, um, self-compassion is really about facing your difficult emotions and your distressing life situations, facing them head on. And it means not resisting them, not pushing them away, not avoiding them, but rather being aware of those negative emotions and um, being aware of when we feel stigmatized in our world, when we feel um, alone, when we feel isolated, becoming aware of all of those things and treating it or responding with kindness and understanding to recognize how difficult it is as a human to feel alone, to feel ashamed, to um, be in pain. So you know, I think when you actually practice self-compassion, you realize how much courage it takes to actually um, come to terms and become aware and make space for the very difficult emotions that um, are part of being human. So, you know, I think when we see it that way, it can really shift our, under, our, our understanding. It's really not about uh, letting ourselves wallow in our pity, but rather it's about seeing and recognizing and becoming aware of um, any negative experiences and, um, you know, responding to ourselves compassionately as a result. And uh, what we tend to see, and this is something that has been demonstrated and replicated in study after study, we have very good, robust data to suggest that um, what ends up happening when people respond to themselves compassionately is that they are actually more likely to engage in behavior that is related to their goals um, much quicker than individuals who might be more likely to push their pain away or not deal with their feelings or to take a more self-critical approach. So actually being self-compassionate is linked with 
more achievement of your goals, um, you know, being able to bounce back after failure, being able to be more resilient in the face of challenge. So, you know, it's actually the opposite of many of the misconceptions that are, as you mentioned, so wildly held. Well, I'm glad you cleared that up for us because that has been something that does irk me a little bit whenever I mention self-compassion and people are like, ooh, like immediately switched off. But when, you know, mm-hmm. you in that way, you can see how it is a strength. And I know that Paul Gilbert, who um, is the, the founder of Compassion Focused Therapy and he does Compassionate Mind Training, he talks about the need for courage and wisdom. And as you say, it does mm-hmm. you know, require a lot of strength to face the things that are challenging mm-hmm. and that you'd mm-hmm. much rather avoid. And then I guess the wisdom component is knowing how to respond once you've got that awareness and you are you know, willing to address that. So when it comes mm-hmm. to developing self-compassion, what are some of the common fears or blocks or resistances that people may have? And why is it so difficult you know, to, to even begin to, to develop? Yeah, and, and this is a really, really good question. And I think warrants um, a nuanced answer and I hope I can do it justice, but um, you know, and depending on, there's different schools of thought of uh, where the blocks are, what fears of self-compassion are, where they come from, how to, um, you know, work with those fears, how to alleviate them. Um, but much of this work comes from, or much of our capacity to respond to our own challenges with compassion comes from um, our, the way, our early years, essentially. So um, how our caregivers responded to our distress. And so we, you know, according to Paul Gil- Gilbert's model, we develop these systems um, that have neurobiological bases and these systems become um, driving forces in our behavior. And so when we, as children, um, when we're not able to care for ourselves, when we rely on others and others meet our um, distress with soothing, then that helps us develop our own self-soothing mechanisms. And again, there's like psychobiological mechanisms that are well-documented by ways in which this happens. So we learn to activate our parasympathetic system. We learn to, um, and much of these processes become automatic over time. And so, um, you know, Oftentimes, if we grow up in invalidating environments, if we, um, you know, are in a threat sort of response, then that soothing system isn't able to develop. And as a result, when we then are adults and when we're faced with a with compassion, it can feel very jarring and it can feel very difficult to actually accept. So, you know, oftentimes there needs to be a management of um, like early trauma to be able to accept compassion. Um, And so, you know, there's there's also, as you mentioned, um, Paul Gilbert developed compassion focused therapy and um, compassionate mind training is the you know, sort of community or everyday person, um, I guess, method of cultivating compassion for the self or a compassionate mind. Whereas compassionate um, focused therapy is, um, you know, can be used, I think, in a more clinical, in a more, um, in more severe cases of psychological trauma or psychological dysfunction. And so, you know, I think we can all learn 
self-compassionate strategies and we can cultivate them. But in order for that to happen, sometimes there needs to be much earlier work done um, or preliminary work done to avoid um, or to be able to deal with some of those fears when they arise. And even to be able to recognize like why we feel resistance. So why does this, um, why does this suggestion of showing yourself kindness and understanding feel so feel off? Like, why is that a threatening experience? And oftentimes it's linked to, you know, our past experiences. So, um, yeah, but I, I think it's a really complicated area. Um, and yeah, and I, th I think there are ways in which we can cultivate compassion in our day-to-day -day lives, but oftentimes um, there are sometimes more foundational pieces that need to be sorted uh, before we can work on applying compassion effectively um, and working through some of those fears that come up. Mm, it's definitely a good in, uh, question to ask yourself you know if you are scared of, of kindness why might that be the case you know mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. so when it comes to things that we can do ourselves you know on our own when it comes to our relationship with food and our relationship with exercise how might we begin to treat ourselves a little bit more self-compassionately yeah um and so you know I think there's a couple of things here, uh, a couple of things to touch on. And uh, the main one is that, unfortunately, the way that the self-compassion practice has sort of been sold and marketed in a Western culture is that it's an individualistic um, strategy that we can use. And we it's our responsibility to manage our mental health. It's our responsibility to deal with these challenges these challenges being bigger structural systemic issues that you know we have very little responsibility over and so i think that's an important distinction in and i think where self-compassion can fall short and i'm saying this from a perspective of being someone who studies the psychological basis of physical activity meaning that all the work i do is individualistic in nature but I often question the utility of some of that work when, you know, I think about the bigger systems that drive everything that um, humans experience. So that aside, there are certainly strategies we can um, adopt from an individualistic perspective uh, to cultivate our, our compassion um, towards distressing scenarios. May they be in physical activity or exercise or performance context, or may they be in um, eating behavior or, um, you know, in, in, in any sort of health-related domain. And so there are effective strategies that take very little time. Um, and these can include things like listening to recordings of meditations and practicing those meditations. So there are five minutes, like for example, uh, Kristen Neff, who you know, brought this idea of self-compassion to the world of social psychology, um, has lots of great resources uh, on her website. And so there's like a, a five minute self-compassion break where you can, you know, do this meditation, it only takes five minutes and the practice of it uh, can really help to activate some of your, you know, what Paul Gilbert calls the self-soothing system. It can activate our parasympathetic system. So in the same ways that we know mindfulness to be uh, helpful and effective in regulating our emotions and helping us um, manage our distress, uh, self-compassion can sometimes have additive benefits beyond that. 
And so, you know, doing things like meditations and listening to recordings can be really, really helpful. Um, even having um, mantras can also be really helpful. So just having, you know, af sort of like affirmations or statements that you might direct yourself to when you are feeling moments of pain. Um, and there's really great recommendations of these as well. So it doesn't have to be this entire like therapeutic overhaul. It can be things that you adopt in a, in very small little bite-sized pieces. Um, and ideally that will accumulate over time. And, you know, once you start to develop these systems and once these neural pathways become more established, um, and there's quite a bit of emerging evidence uh, on how uh, self-compassionate, um, self-compassionate thoughts can, you know, change the way that our, our brain functions essentially. And so by doing these things, the small little pieces and practicing uh, over time, it can really help to change our uh, ways of thinking and our ways of regulating our emotions um, over time. And in addition to that, of course, there are, you know, longer term interventions, as we call them, or programs that are like 10 weeks of, you know, cultivating self-compassion or cultivating, um, you know, an understanding of how to relate to yourself compassionately in health-related distress or, um, you know, there's programs for disordered eating and there's programs for body dissatisfaction. So, um, you know, there are those more involved interventions as well, but again, just really simple, short, brief activities can also be quite helpful. Um, in our research, we rely a lot on writing interventions. So I've been working uh, actually this past week quite heavily with my students trying to um, write up some of the findings from some writing interventions that we've been doing where, um, you know, doing tasks of like 10 minute writing sessions where we encourage individuals to think about their experiences that may have been difficult around their bodies or their weight or their, their body shape or size um, and reconstruct those experiences in a self-compassionate light or respond to your your, your younger self with compassion for that difficult emotion that was experienced. And uh, then we look at outcomes to see how that compassionate induction can actually impact how um, individuals are feeling and what they might be intending to do. So very brief ways and acute strategies can be very, very helpful. So it's, I think a really nice way of starting. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially for individuals who may be a little bit more hesitant, like just developing mm -hmm. that awareness of oh when mm -hmm. are you struggling you know and having that intention to alleviate your own distress rather than to try mm -hmm. and then knowing oh you know what it doesn't have to be this um intensive like focus for me I can mm -hmm. begin to implement you know maybe I will give a meditation a go just listen to it for five or ten minutes mm -hmm. maybe I will mm -hmm. sit down and, and decide to, to write myself a letter from the perspective of someone who is compassionate because I'm not very good at it yet so that mm -hmm. will help me um so yeah just small steps I think can make a huge difference and, and compound over time and as you say once the neural pathways begin to change it becomes a new way of thinking that is a little bit mm -hmm. um, less conscious you know requires less conscious attention and it yes. becomes the, the default way of um, relating exactly to so mm -hmm. I 
I know that you've also done some research regarding like body related emotions. And I wondered whether we could expand upon those because I think that sometimes these emotional responses are difficult to tolerate. And mm -hmm. that, you know, inability to sit with those emotions or to face those emotions is a bit of a block when it comes to doing the other kind of work because it feels mm -hmm. like um, So could you uh, tell us what, what are body related emotions? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is where my, you know, research area, I'm still absolutely very interested in this, but this is sort of where I started. And it is uh, basically trying to understand emotional experiences of self-consciousness. So uh, drawing from the social psychology literature, um, this type of uh, the set of emotions, um, they're called self-conscious emotions. So there are uh, essentially how we relate to our bodies when we feel self-conscious and the emotions that arise when we are feeling self-conscious. So I think when I say the word self-conscious, a lot of um, individuals might be able to like recall an experience or know what that feels like. And it's this um, intense awareness of uh, yourself. It's intense awareness of what your body uh, looks like. And particularly it's social in nature. So it is, we experience these things when we are oftentimes in the presence of others. And when we feel that we are going to be evaluated and when there's potential for us to be evaluated negatively. So these are social emotions in, in many ways, and they can be contextualized to different areas of our life. So we might feel self-conscious um, when we are like presenting in front of an audience. We might feel self-conscious in the context of performing in sport. We might feel self-conscious writing a test. It could be any you know domain. And so I'm really interested, and uh, much of this work was um, has been done by... Um, the researcher that I did my um, graduate work with, uh, Dr. Catherine Sabiston, um, as well as others, looking at how we can contextualize these emotions to the body and to the physical self and to our physical experiences. And so when I say the physical self, I'm referring to the body's uh, appearance, so what we typically think of when we think of body image, but also the body's uh, functional capacity. So what our body can do. And this is often like uh, when we think of achievement oriented domains like fitness or any physical activity domains, oftentimes we can feel uh, self-conscious about our ability to carry through a certain movement task, for example. And so um, we're really interested in, in my lab and in several other labs uh, across Canada for how we can try to um, understand and uh, target these self-conscious emotions. And we've you know, based on, on the literature, been able to study emotions um, in their discrete sort of functions. And so we can think of uh, body-related shame as an example of a self-conscious emotion. So shame is something that we experience when we feel inferior about ourselves in some sort of way. This is incredibly common when it comes to uh, the body. Um, and so we often feel less than or we feel inferior about our, our self as a whole as a result of what our body looks like um, and part of the reason why this is the case is that there's such a huge investment in our society about what our body should look like that communicates to um, to the outside world our value and our social currency in many ways so uh, shame is something that um, I do a lot of work in and shame is an emotion that's also really related to stigma so you know there's been more work recently looking at weight related stigma and so stigma and shame are quite um, 
quite related in many ways. And um, there's other emotions as well. So we can feel guilt. And guilt is something that I think goes so closely hand in hand with many um, fitness endeavors. So it can go hand in hand with a lot of more regimented exercise programs. It can uh, be really closely tied to dieting. So this experience of feeling guilty about uh, things that we aren't able to do or that behaviors that we're not able to engage in. Um, there's also body-related embarrassment as another emotion. And so we could all think of times when we've been embarrassed. And it's so interesting when we recall these experiences, sometimes we feel that full like body experience of feeling flush, um, getting really hot, uh, feeling your palms sweating. Like these are all your sort of relived bodily experiences of something like uh, embarrassment. And uh, but there's other emotions as well. So one that uh, I did uh, some of my earlier work on is body related envy. And so this is that idea of experiencing a negative emotion after we compare our bodies to another source or target that we feel is better than us in some sort of way. And, you know, I think in the era of social media, this is again, a ubiquitous experience that we can all relate to. So scrolling through social media and feeling those pangs of envy is really, really common around, uh, around the body. But as you say, um, these things are extremely difficult to come to terms with. And from a research perspective, they are very difficult for us to measure. So most individuals aren't aware of what these experiences feel like, or rather they're not aware of how to distinguish them from one another. Um, and even if they are aware, sometimes it's difficult to assess these using self-reported surveys, which are oftentimes one of our most go-to ways for assessing emotion. So, you know, even though when we talk to participants and in much of the qualitative like interview type research that I've done, and uh, certainly my anecdotal experience of being a human, um, we, these experiences are very, very common. Yet when we look at our research findings, um, typically our scores are quite low. So um, people report really low scores of experiencing these things, even though when we speak about it um, and when we explain it, I think it, it can be very relatable. So back to your point that it's very difficult to recognize these emotions. And, um, and of course it is, right? They're threatening. So, uh, human nature to push away things that we feel are threatening. That's really interesting that you find sort of low scores for what, you know, intuitively you know to be a, a very common experience. And I think that probably does relate back to the difficulty that people have with identifying exactly how they're feeling. And, you know, I just find emotion so fascinating, not just from like the, the physiological basis and the action urges like associated with them, but also our uh, attitude towards feeling emotions and what we should or should not feel. And I think just mm -hmm. you talk about the difference between embarrassment, envy, guilt and shame helps to, I guess, helps for you from an individual perspective to understand oh okay so that's what I'm feeling in that situation that's how my body responds and that's the urge associated with that now I know how I'm feeling I'm beginning to have an understanding as to why I might be feeling that way and I think that ability to differentiate between different emotions or emotional granularity can really be such a useful skill to learn to, to develop because then you get an understanding of oh what do I actually need in this situation you know my body is telling me to withdraw 
and I'm feeling like I'm not good enough, but what do I actually need and why am I feeling this way? So if someone has sort of identified that they are experiencing, you know, envy or, or guilt or shame, um, what might we do then to kind of to adapt to that, to, to manage those emotions? Yeah, great question. Um, and this is, I think, where uh, self-compassion can come in and uh, self-compassion can be really handy. So, you know, there is research and, and some of the like early theorists in the compassion literature have proposed that self-compassion can be the antidote to some of these difficult emotions, particularly shame. So by treating these emotions with kindness, understanding and uh, recognition that these are just part of being human. Um, these are experiences that every single person has and that we that connect us as well. So I think that's another really important thing is that feeling these self-conscious emotions can be extremely isolating. Um, but when we recognize that feeling these things um, and these emotions are shared by everyone around us, then it can make us feel a bit less alone. And so, um, you know, it can make us feel a bit more connected. So part of responding to our difficult emotions with self-compassion is doing just that, is recognizing how other people experience things of what we call common humanity in uh, Kristen Neff's model of self-compassion, um, the idea of mindfulness. So observing that emotion for what it is, it's an emotion. It's not a fact. It is not objective. It is a feeling that will, uh, that is experienced to indicate something. It's a data point that can tell us, you mentioned um, information about what is happening in our environment and how we are um, experiencing it. And that we can see it in a mindful way. Uh, we can let it pass. And um, it doesn't have to be something that drives us or drives our behavior or, um, you know, as Paul Gilbert might say, gets in the driver's seat and then runs the show. So that's the, you know, core component of looking at or using mindfulness to uh, become aware of our emotional experiences. And then the other piece, uh, according to Kristen Neff's model, would be treating ourselves uh, with kindness and understanding and uh, compassion and care when we are experiencing those emotions because they are so difficult and they feel difficult in the body. Um, they make us feel uh, negatively about ourselves. And so addressing the feeling um, and responding to that feeling with kindness um, can actually help that feeling to exist, uh, but then also dissipate <laughs> as you know, emotions do. So yeah, I think um, you know, self-compassion is a really nice way of, of addressing some of those self-conscious emotions around the body and in other domains as well. Um, and that's uh, what some of my research is looking at as well. So there is data to suggest that self-compassion can reduce these emotions. And again, just like five minutes of listening to a self-compassionate recording can help us deal with these negative emotions. So um, you know, a, an empirically supported strategy that could be helpful a funny paradox isn't it that these self-conscious social emotions can make us feel isolated mm -hmm. and uh, thought that oh I'm the only one who feels this way or I shouldn't be experiencing this can just perpetuate some of the distress so I think that common exactly. element is super um, crucial to recognizing that you know it's not your fault that your brain's wired this way and this is something that we all it's just a part of the human experience um, now what can we do about it and I think getting to that stage is um 
where a lot of the work takes place and um when people are able to to recognize that oh you know it's not personal failing of mine this is just a normal human experience it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. but it's not life-threatening and I can do something about this um it's just such a nice place to to be able to reach but as we've touched on it's not necessarily straightforward but I hope just mm-hmm. with this podcast it's not you know here's the answer to all of your problems but more so here's a place to start and it, you know to get mm-hmm. in to think about these things um, so I do mm-hmm, have a, a mm-hmm. couple more topics that I'd love we could touch on. And we spoke a little bit about how this um, hyperfixation on trying to change how we look can lead to an experience of being disembodied. So on the flip side, what is embodiment and why is that potentially so important? Yeah, so embodiment uh, and, you know, the the literature and the the science of embodiment is quite interesting because it spans lots of different disciplines. There is, um, you know, there are, there's like neurological studies on embodiment. Um, There are many sociological theories of embodiment, and there's also a psychosocial perspective of embodiment. So, um, you know, again, like with all these psychological constructs, there are oftentimes these very complicated neurobiological and social uh, intersections that that are important to consider. But this essence of embodiment, um, and again, different theorists, different schools of thought on this, um, and from a body image perspective, it is quite similar to this idea of body image as a neutral experience. Um, But it is much more than that, in that embodiment is how not only is it about the body, but it's how how our body connects us to the world around us. So how is our body um, and our experience in and with the body, how does that um, connect us to our social uh, constructs, our social identities? How does it represent who we are um, and how does it communicate to the world? Um, It is linked with, you know, uh, with power and with uh, privilege. So it's linked to a lot of um, sociocultural constructs as well. So you know, and I, and I always have a hard time like defining what embodiment is because it's such a felt experiential uh, construct, I think. So, you know, to be embodied is to be immersed in your, um, in your physical body, but also in your physical space. <laughs> and so that can mean being connected, uh, you know, feeling like you belong and feeling like your body and yourself is included in the spaces that you're in that can be um, a part of embodiment as well. And, you know, when we talk about being embodied versus disembodied, there's lots of contextual factors and features that can perpetuate our feelings of embodiment and disembodiment. So, uh, for example, if we are in a a fitness class and the instructor is um, encouraging the clients or students in the class to connect with how a certain movement is making them feel or um, how their body is maybe resisting a certain movement or how um, they're able to occupy space within the room that can be embodying Um, if the classroom or you know classic um, I'm thinking of a classroom but if the fitness studio has images of diverse bodies um, and it has representations of different instructors and fitness professionals and clients that are um, in different bodies and enjoying exercise, those are all 
features of our environment that can help us feel more embodied. On the flip side, we can feel disembodied when, um, for example, a fitness instructor might um, encourage us to look at our look at the mirror, look at ourselves in the mirror, and see how um, you know our body parts are looking or, um, you know, when we basically come out of the body and use external sources and external information to, to evaluate the self. So, um, and again, lots of contextual features in any traditional gym environment uh, that promote disembodiment. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the other example that I think uh, can be helpful in trying to understand it is uh, using internal cues rather than external cues. So uh, when we think, for example, about like fitness trackers. So some embodiment researchers might suggest that by using fitness trackers and by using external indicators of our performance, we are taking away our experience of how we are feeling and what we are capable of doing and looking inward to see our progress or to determine um, you know, what we should be doing. So you know, using those external versus internal um, sources of information can be also, I think, touching on this embodiment um, uh, phenomenon. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And that's something that I sort of picked up on as when working with people is that, again, we normalize a lot of potentially disembodying practices in the fitness industry through this, like the default way that we go when it comes to implementing nutrition advice, such as tracking everything and mm -hmm. kind of vigilant self-monitoring um, and mm -hmm. using internal cues to, again, try and change how we look, which could potentially be disrupting our experience of embodiment. And I just find embodiment so interesting. I actually came across it first because I was interested in the philosophy of phenomenology. So that was my... Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, hang on. I've read about this before and it was coming up in the body image research. It's like, well, this makes a lot of sense because it's about how our subjective like experience of the world and as the way that you've described it, you know, when we are um, feeling a connection to the world, we're feeling a connection to our bodies and the, you can just imagine the um, impact that that has on your functioning and your well-being as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that a lot of um, interventions have sort of been looking at the role of yoga um, and how that can potentially promote embodiment. But as you say, it mm -hmm. also depends on your environment as well, because if you're feeling mm -hmm. like comparing yourself to um, the other people in the room or the instructor is using cues that make you feel self-conscious then you're probably not going to get the, the benefits in terms of the the embodiment there um, so I think this is definitely something that's very personal in nature but also a lot of what we've touched on so far has related back to this huge sort of social component of of body image you know we've talked about mm. self-conscious emotions we've talked about um status we've talked about weight stigma and i think as well at the core of this you know a lot of appearance motives um for exercise or for nutrition changes are based in our fear of evaluation of others and how others perceive us and you mentioned um earlier on in relation to self-compassion that you know, you know that there are structural issues at play as well, and you don't want to 
um, place all of the responsibility on the individual for their own well-being. And I like to, to say that collective health is an individual issue in that we all have a part to play in the well-being of mm. ourselves, but others as well. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to trying to change, you know, <laughs> I mean, this is like the million dollar question, but <laughs> I think about this a lot from the perspective of the fitness industry, because a lot of the practices are so, you know, shame, shaming people for um, the way that they look therefore they buy your product when I'm thinking well mm -hmm. doesn't everyone wants to feel good at the core anyway like can't you just promote this in a here's how to enhance your life you know kind of perspective mm -hmm. rather than mm -hmm. you should feel bad about where you are um mm -hmm. so what could we even begin to to do when it comes to taking a bit of like social responsibility um for the core because again I, I feel like I don't want to have to work one-to-one -one with individuals addressing this knowing that if not much <laughs> else is changing it's just like a hamster wheel. Right. Okay, let's just fix people as we go right. along rather than solving the, the root of the issue. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and I mean, this is, yeah, such a hard, um, such a hard problem. And, you know, I, and I will say there's lots of um, incredible activists and advocates that are already doing this type of work. Like they're being agents of change and fighting um, with politicians and trying to implement policies that, um, encourage, you know, or, or disrupt some of the more problematic things. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to recognize the people already doing this work and amplifying their voices and uh, being allies in, in that. I think, um, you know, issues of privilege and power really come up here as well. So uh, whose voices are going to be heard? Um, and when we think about structural change is thinking about the individuals and systems that benefit from our current oppressive, you know, system. So I think without, without that uh, recognition, um, it's going to be impossible for the individual to be, uh, as you said, just going through the hamster wheel and working one-on-one -on -one and making such incremental change uh, in a world that doesn't support it. So I think some of the, you know, I, I know some of the things that, that I try to do both in my role as a, um, a a researcher and a supervisor or a an instructor of university students is, um, you know, I try to use to be very wary of representation. So, um, you know, to discuss, to use terms that aren't weight stigmatizing, to um, make room and to give voice to people in marginalized bodies and to feature in you know, like my lecture materials, um, fat women. And again, using that term, not in a pejorative way, but in a, um, in a way that reclaims this, uh, this idea of fat as a neutral term and uh, featuring fat women exercising and enjoying themselves. Um, so starting to disrupt some of those norms, I think can be, can be things that we do. Um, and, you know, some of the, the, the work that I'm hoping to do in, uh, in the future, and, and this is all pending uh, grant funding that uh, is currently uh, under review is trying to work in fitness environments and physical activity environments to change some of these structures. So to have representations of higher weight individuals in physical activity, to make room for um, fitness professionals that are in diverse bodies. So to create opportunities in representation and equity and diversity, uh, these are fundamental issues. And I think we have the social culture right now that is 
more open than before potentially to some of these um, social movements. But it's so interesting how, you know, the body and weight representation and diversity still doesn't quite get the same level of, um, you know, respect. So in the sense that, you know, the, some of the, the, the people that I work with um, from a scholarly perspective, um, you know, promote this idea of body diversity. So our bodies are meant to be diverse. We're meant to be, some people are meant to be thin. Some people's bodies are going to be large and fat. And those are all just representations of how humans can be different in the world. Uh, in the same way that the color of our skin can be different, in the same way that our culture can be different, in the same way that our gender identity can be different. Um, body representation is just another way that we could be different. Um, and so, yeah, I think using those, any platforms and primarily giving room and space to other people, uh, particularly those that are trying to advocate from a marginalized status <laughs> um, and facing so many structural barriers. So yeah, it's, it's hard. And I don't think I, you know, even touched on a good answer there, but um, yeah, these are some of the things that I think about a lot as well. Uh, also, you know, like as a thin white woman doing this kind of research, I also have to recognize constantly and uh, position myself in a way where I have a lot of privilege. So people are going to listen to me when I um, talk about uh, improving body image because I am in a body that isn't stigmatized. So there's so many pieces to this Um that I think when we're doing this work, when we're allies, when we're um, trying to give space for other people, we need to consider. So I'll leave it at that because I don't, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to get, you know, to, <laughs> to a meaningful response. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And it's definitely um, not an easy question to answer. And I've sort of shared those feelings of, I guess, self-consciousness when it comes to talking about these issues, knowing that, like you say, yeah, you know, we do come from a, a place of privilege and we are closer to the, the ideal than potentially mm -hmm. other people. Um, and I think I got a little bit disheartened when I was looking into the research on weight stigma, just knowing how prevalent those attitudes are, even with people who work within the health industry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> These are people who- Especially. Know, yeah. yeah. Would expect Especially in- the health community, especially in physical activity uh, communities. And, you know, it makes sense when we look at the curriculums, like when I look at a kinesiology curriculum, there is so much um, inherent and implicit anti-fat bias that is just embedded in the curriculum. And, you know, in textbooks, like it's so hard for me to find a textbook to use in my exercise psychology class that doesn't um, you know, speak about obesity as a behavioral concern that can be fixed by physical activity. So it's so, so embedded and difficult to, to address. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that um, just starting with, you know, at least raising awareness of these issues and having a place where we can openly discuss um, what could be done and knowing that the change, I think, begins with the individuals ourselves on how we um, portray ourselves online or how we speak to others, how we treat others, and beginning to question our own beliefs that we may have about the responsibility or you know, the status of others, whatever it is, um, I think can at least be a, a starting point, but definitely a lot of work to, to be done there. Um, but I wanted to thank you for your time today. You've been very, very generous. Um, and I hope that this conversation has been 
potentially eye-opening for some people. And I believe that, um, yeah, that there's a lot of valuable um, content that you, you shared there. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk about this stuff always. So <laughs> happy to be here. Thank you, Shannon. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, feel free to share on Instagram and tag me at shannonbeer underscore. Check out the show notes to learn more about today's guest. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.